for talking to me today in this Judge Business School white paper podcast. You've made an analogy between the role of the British Navy in policing the slave trade in the 19th century and the potential role of something you called the Clean Energy Alliance. How did that analogy come about? Well, Devon Manson and myself, we, we found ourselves considering a scenario that we felt hadn't been considered widely before. And the scenario started from thinking about three timescales. One, the timescale over which fossil fuels deplete. The second, the timescale of the impacts of climate change. And thirdly, the timescale of technological innovation. And it seemed that much of the debate around energy security had focused on the depletion of resources. But what if a scenario where climate change is much worse and much sooner than most people have expected? We thought that might actually set the pace for energy security and actually redefine energy security. At the moment, military and diplomatic effort is devoted by the West in ensuring the free movement of fossil fuels. Effort is done to keep out open choke points like the Straits of Hormuz, etc. But might it not happen that in the future, these same military resources have to be deployed to constrain the shipments of fossil fuels, even to interdict the shipments of fossil fuels that are destined to end users who are outside of the global common purpose for a clean future. So the, the, the people, the states that are on side for a cleaner energy future, we call those states the Clean Energy Alliance. And military force and diplomatic resources would have to be deployed, we felt, to ensure the success of the alliance in delivering a low-carbon future, conscious that some states might choose to sit outside the alliance. Would the states who sat outside the alliance be regarded as, and I say in brackets, enemies? No. No, we, we, we do, in our paper, use the phrase recalcitrant. We call them the recalcitrant states. I think that we take the view that they would, um, uh, they would sit outside the global economy. Yes, they, 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 they would be um, subject to um, disapproval and, and, and to sanction. But uh, we, we don't see this ending in actual um, uh, violation of their territorial integrity. No, not at all. But the idea that these would not be good participants in the global economy, ab absolutely. Um, one thing that, that, that becomes problematic is it takes us to what we suggest might be a redefinition of sovereignty for the 21st century, that just as sovereignty is, is uh, eroded for for states that engage in uh, ethnic cleansing or, let's say, child labor or, or other things like that, that a notion of, of, of climate crime might say that uh, s states which persisted in using carbon resources in, in, in ways far beyond the mainstream best practice might be regarded as being guilty of climate crime and therefore to be subject to sanction, such that although the carbon being burned irresponsibly was domestic, coal from their own national coal mines, uh, we would, you, through the Clean Energy Alliance, uh, seek to interdict their, their fossil fuel shipments for transport to oil. Um, so, th so that's how we see it. We see it that the recalcitrant states would be, would be held outside the, the globalised uh, mainstream economy. And of course the Clean Energy Alliance would have standards and members would have to keep to those standards. In particular, you want Brazil, Russia, India and China to join the alliance? Well, I, I don't think the, the alliance necessarily has to be uh, strongly constituted or, or, or a, um, 
essentially a treaty organization. No, no, not at all. But I think fundamentally our scenario deals with a scenario in which Brazil, Russia, India, China have all chosen to have common purpose with the West in delivering a clean energy future. Um, there would be a scenario in which uh, India and China uh, were not having a, the same policy position as, as the United States and Europe, but we don't consider that scenario. We only consider the scenario in which everyone from the BRIC countries and from the West are, are in this together. Um, that, we think, is, is, is the more interesting scenario. Uh, the, the scenario in which India, China, Brazil and Russia do not come on side for a clean energy future is a very bleak scenario indeed, I think. Uh, I'm an optimist. I think fundamentally they will come on side. But it's very much the stick and the carrot, isn't it? How would you make sure they did come on side? Well, it's their choice. We wouldn't make sure they came on side. If they didn't choose to, then this doesn't happen. Um, the, the point is, though, that um, the West is, is, has the technological capacity uh, and the nature of its economy, i.e. somewhat deindustrialized. that for some, in some sense the, the move towards a clean energy future is intrinsically attractive. We are a higher-tech economy here in the West. Uh, we're less uh, reliant on, on manufacturing industry, and so for us the move seems doable. Uh, what could make it attractive for India and China? Well, certainly I don't think that India and China should be forced to take on the cost burden of policing the new uh, common purpose. So it would be that uh, I expect, and Devon and I expect, that the, the burden of enforcement would fall to the richest members of the alliance. Now, if Russia or Brazil or India or China wanted to deploy um, military assets in support of uh, this thing we call the Clean Energy Alliance, of course, that would be a good thing. But equally, we don't think that uh, they should be called upon to greatly increase their efforts in defense to do this. Um, and I'm not trying to imply that it requires actually an increase in effort, in increase in assets in, in, in the West. It requires really a de redeployment. But um, no, it's that the West should bear these costs in order to make the proposition attractive for the newly industrializing countries and for all countries. It would be wonderful if no states were recalcitrant and that everyone joined. But I think that's unrealistic. I think there will always be outsiders. How important would the United States be in such an alliance, particularly since we've had a Barack Obama victory, and he has stated that one of the big policy changes he's going to make is to try and cut carbon emissions? Well, the United States is, is still the largest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world, and uh, China is closing fast. Uh, the United States is clearly extremely important in this space. And just as we said, I said earlier that our scenario considers Brazil, Russia, India, China to be on side. Well, equally, of course, we consider the United States, Europe, Japan to all be on side. Uh, U.S. leadership is uh, important. I don't think it will be solely U.S. leadership, but I think the U.S. will have a strong role to play, a stronger role than they have today, actually, in uh, environmental policy globally. Uh, I think also the, the U.S. brings to this uh, a particular uh, constitutional uh, legal uh, perspective, which is the, the importance of treaty to the United States. And the, 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 um, when one thinks about the Kyoto Protocol and one thinks about how the U.S. hasn't ratified that, that treaty, but, uh, but other countries have, but it has no great power on those countries. If the United States ratifies a treaty, it has teeth in, in, within the United States. And so I think that um, if the U.S. could make a, a commitment, it would inevitably be a strong commitment, and that's a good thing. And do you think very soon or one day they might indeed make a commitment to form a clean energy alliance? 
Well, we think our scenario, although it's not necessarily likely, is possible. And so we're putting forward a notion in which the United States, Europe, Japan, Brazil, Russia, India and China all come together with a common purpose to decarbonize. But it is a world in which the agreement has enforcement measures, it, it has um, monitoring, it, it has uh, compliance. And so uh, this takes us to the idea of well, what do we do with people who uh, refuse to play? Um, and that takes us back to things we talked about earlier. So, so uh, yes, I think that the, the United States would be attracted to uh, uh, ag- international agreements which are verifiable. And this is a scenario of, which has a high level of verification in, in associated with it. So we come full circle back to that analogy you made at the beginning of the British Navy policing the slave trade in the 19th century. We're going back to the future in a way. Well, I think the, the, the thing there is that uh, the point we make is that you know, here we are talking about the West using its diplomatic and military power to close down a trade or constrain a trade in fossil fuels that in the late 20th century it used all its muscle to keep open. Isn't that inherently hypocritical? This is the central, the nub of it. Uh, and this led Devon and myself to, to start thinking about Britain's role, military role vis-à-vis the slave trade. And we thought, well, you know, is it possible that within a generation a country or a community can do a volt fast on something like that? Uh, to do something that's so inherently hypocritical and yet so manifestly right. And we thought that was the, the parallel with the slave trade, that in the late 18th century the Royal Navy was keeping open a trade that was making Britain rich and that was entirely legal. And yet by the early 19th century, with, within a generation, these same forces were being used to interdict and control and, and persuade recalcitrant states, to, uh, to do the right thing. And no one would later say that it was wrong of Britain to do this, despite the fact it was, by some measure, hypocritical. So I think that that was, our, that was the way that we started to draw parallels between uh, the issues of climate change mitigation and the issues of slavery abolition. And, um, but we don't want to claim we're the first people to start to draw parallels between climate change and slavery. Other people have, and, and since the paper that we're talking about here, I've given more thought to uh, you know, other work that has drawn parallels. Mark Davidson has done a, a paper where he talks about the similarity of the political debates around climate change and mitigation and abolition of slavery in the United States. Uh, so there's actually a range of people commenting on various parallels. We came at it from an energy security parallel. Other people come at it from an environmental observation or analysis of political rhetoric. Um, uh, And um, uh, we just came at it from the the energy security perspective. To sum up at the end, there is a pressing timescale. Are you an optimist or a pessimist in terms of the world being able to collaborate to cut carbon emissions? No, no, fundamentally I'm I'm an optimist, actually. I I think that uh, although this scenario might look a little bleak, Yes, that, oh my goodness, we might have to involve the military to enforce new standards. I actually take the view that it is going to be possible for the world to establish low-carbon behavior. Uh, So in some sense, that's optimistic. I think um, we face um, sort of short-term issues of of who's going to move first. Well, clearly Europe has has decided that it's it's going to put forward policy measures that that, uh, seek to address this challenge. But... uh, who will move first, uh, the United States or China? This, this, uh, this, I hope, is a short-term measure. I think, in fact, that the, um, perhaps with the new U.S. administration, there's the prospect that, in fact, these uh, very important countries will, will all agree a common purpose. 
such that the vast majority of humanity are on track to address this issue. Dr. William Nuttall, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today in this Judge Business School white paper podcast. Oh, thank you very much.